Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Church, what our eyes long to see is that every pain and evil will be crushed and that Jesus Christ will reign. Like we opened up our service in Psalm 96, singing to the Lord a new song, singing to the Lord a new song and blessing his name. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and let the trees of the forest sing before the Lord for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to see you. We long for your reign literally to commence here on this groaning planet. Lord God, we look to the heavens and we rejoice for you are coming. You are coming to judge the world in righteousness. And Lord God, we look at the earth and we weep for we see sin, injustice, murder, hatred, anger, unforgiveness. And Lord Jesus, now, as we are caught between earth and heaven, as we worship you, yet our feet are on this soil, we ask that even now, you would speak to our very spirit by your Holy Spirit speaking in your word. Amen. James chapter 5, specifically we'll look at verses 9 and 10 of James chapter 5. But you know, James speaks up about our speech in every single chapter of this little epistle. He begins in James, in, in, in chapter 1, when he says, if any of you think you are religious... Verse, chapter 1, verse 26. If any of you think you are religious, but you do not bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart, and the truth is not in you. From the very beginning of his epistle, James collars our sort of chin-stroking Christianity, whereby we say, well, I'm here in church, and I gave money. And James says, if you don't have control of your tongue, your Christianity isn't nearly what you think it is. And he doesn't let up. In chapter 2, he says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? And he says, if you tell a hungry person, well, I hope you're warm and filled, but you don't actually do anything about it, it's empty faith and dead faith can't save you. So James is continuing to say, if you say that you have faith with your tongue, but your life doesn't show it. The way you treat people doesn't show it. It's false. And I don't think any of us can soon forget chapter three where James says the tongue is like a spark. And he says, look at those mountains of forests that went up in a, in a blazing forest fire. He says, your tongue is the spark that set that whole thing going. He says in chapter four, Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. Man, James knew our zip code. He knew that in church, the easiest thing to do is to confess somebody else's sins. Speak evil about her, speak evil about him. And James says, hey, would you sweep your own sidewalk for once in your life? 
He's like, God is tired of you telling me how much dirt they have and how much dirt she has. It is piling up on your own porch. And here in chapter five, he doesn't let up about our tongues and our speech. And the stunning thing to me about chapter five is that verses seven through 12 are about the return of Jesus Christ and how we talk to and about each other. And the fascinating only God would put it in the Bible kind of wonder to me is this. There is nothing more cosmic, more once in a lifetime than the return of Jesus Christ. And yet there is nothing more common and more pedestrian than saying a snarky thing to or about someone else. And James places those two together together. You see, he says we have to be patient for the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 8, we have to be patient and establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then he says in verse 9, your patience is threatened by your tongue and your grumbling. And then he's going to say again in verse 10, be steadfast, suffer long, be patient. He's going to say in verse 11, be steadfast and be patient. And then he's going to say in verse 12, your patience and steadfastness is threatened by your tongue and how you make oaths and break them and don't keep them. And so we look together at James 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Essentially, our outline is the two commands. Both are negations. Do not grumble and do not swear. Do not grumble, verse 9. Do not swear, verse 12. And I want to invert the order and deal with not swearing first, and I want to deal with do not grumble second because I think the, the one in verse 12, don't swear oaths, that's a sort of an easy one because I don't think it's the one that you all struggle with. So I can butter you up with that one. And then when we get to verse nine, I can just slam you right in the rib cage because that's the one that is your deal. So beginning in verse 12, do not swear in context, it, it almost seems strange. He says in verse 12, but above all, like this is super important. Do not swear. You're like, well, what are you? There wasn't anything about telling promises or swearing in the, in the first part. And it can be a little bit of a mystery how this fits in the context. But I think a clue maybe, maybe the right way to take it is this. In verses one through six, he talks about if you're poor and mistreated and, and you're suffering injustice, that's hard and you have to be patient. And then he says in verses seven and eight, you gotta be patient and suffer. And then he says in verses 10 and 11, you have to be patient like Job and really go through trials. 
So I wonder if the way it fits in the context is this. Whenever you are in a time of suffering and it's going on too long, don't you feel like doing this? Hey, God, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to make an oath with you. If you get me out of this jam, God, I'm going to give a lot of money to send that mission trip to Honduras. I promise. And maybe one of the things James is saying is don't do that. Let your steadfastness and patience be steadfastness and patience. Let your word, I will trust the Lord, simply be yes and yes. Well, this commandment against giving or taking oaths, uh, we all believe together a couple of things. One, every verse in the Bible is precious. Trust, we all believe that together. But the other thing we gotta believe together intelligently is this. If you take any verse of the Bible and pretend there isn't the rest of the Bible, you can mess up your doctrine real quick. So we have to take this verse that seems to be an absolute forbidding of taking oaths and we have to put it in the context of all of Scripture because Scripture doesn't absolutely forbid the taking of oaths. This is, this is forbidding a kind of oath where your yes isn't yes and your no isn't no. But like if, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God in his moral law gives moral instructions about how to properly take an oath. So it's not that oaths are absolutely forbidden. I don't think you can take this verse to mean that you can't take the Pledge of Allegiance or if you run for office and get elected. And aside, I hope you run for office. If you do, I would vote for you. And then, then you get elected and you have to put your hand on the Bible and swear to uphold the Constitution and all that. Well, th this isn't saying that you can't do that. In fact, that has Christian roots to it. What this is talking about is a kind of oath where your yes isn't yes and your no isn't no. It's really exactly what James, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 33. You've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all by heaven or the throne of God or the earth or the footstool or Jerusalem or the city of the king. Do not take an oath by your head for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this is easy evil. Jesus and James are condemning the same thing. Using an oath as a kind of public performance, like big words and so much sophistry, but there's an escape hatch because of the clever way that you make the oath. Your yes isn't really yes and your no isn't really no. So Jesus and James mean the exact same thing and that's this. If you are a real Christian, your word is good. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you are a true Christian, your yes is yes, and your no is no, and there's no weaselly way about it. If that's the first one, don't swear oaths, what's the second one? It's in verse nine. Do not grumble. Do not complain about one another, or do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Well, if you notice the grammar of the text, and this doesn't come through in the English translation, the ESV translates it with a simple negative imperative, do not grumble. I think the tense and voice and mood of the verb would convince me that a better translation would be stop grumbling. It's not like you're on a path and there's a sign, stay off the grass. It's that you're playing in the grass and the command is stop playing in the grass and get back on the path. It's stop doing this thing that you're already doing. Now, how did James know 
that they were grumbling and complaining about one another. Did he have like a Siri or an Alexa in their house and he's like listening in to what they said? No, James knew that they were grumbling and complaining about one another for the same reason that I know that you all are complaining and grumbling about each other because you're human beings and you, you have annoying habits. That, that's just the truth and so do I. He knew, he knew that we do that because we do, we do that all the time. And so he says, stop doing this. But notice, not only the grammar of saying stop doing this, but don't miss this little word. Do not grumble against one another. Brothers, brothers, so that you may not be judged. He is going to give them a very sharp body blow. But as he does, he calls them his brothers. He's not saying, I am shoving you away from me and doing violence against you. He's saying, well, I have to wound you, but my wound is the wound of a family member because I love you. He uses this term of belonging and affection. And he says, we're a family and we need to be careful how we love one another. Brothers, sisters, grumbling against one another. It is a fact. It is a fact, is it not? that no one on God's green earth can press your buttons like your family. They can set you off like that. They can cause you to grumble and complain just like that. And beloved, we are a family. And you get the most annoyed at your family, you get the most angry at your family, and the church is the family of God. And there will be anger and annoyance and temptation to bitterness and a lack of forgiveness here in this family because we are a family. I was just last week with good friends in California that I hadn't caught up with in a decade, maybe two decades, and, and they asked me about our church. And I'm, I am telling you with all the honesty in my heart, when they asked me about our church, I did not tell them the details of our re-roofing project. I told them your names. I told them about how some of our members died last year with a strong faith in Jesus Christ. We are a family. This belonging to one another is who we are as a body. And so he says, don't grumble against one another. That's your family. That's your forever family. Verse eight, establish your hearts. Verse nine, do not grumble. Verse eight, we need to watch our hearts. Verse nine, we need to watch our speech. How like Jesus, James is, the heart, and it flows out of the mouth. Or we could say verse eight, we need to watch our hearts. Verse nine, we need to watch our unity in our fellowship. Verse eight is totally intuitive. He says, if you are in a time of suffering, you need to have a, a firm faith in your heart to get through that time of suffering. And that's intuitive for us. Verse nine, perhaps, is not quite as intuitive because verse nine says, if you are in a time of suffering, you need, absolutely need, to stop grumbling and complaining in order to get through your time of suffering because we have to quit judging our fellow believers. We have to quit grumbling against God. James is all about trials, and from the very first chapter, he says, if you're in a trial and you start grumbling and complaining to God about your trial, you're missing the whole point of the trial. And here he says, if you're in a difficult relationship and you're just grumbling and complaining about those people around you, you're missing the whole point. 
James is saying this, and oh, church, get this. If you are going to make it all the way through to the end, that is, the coming of the Lord is at hand. If you are going to make it all the way through to the end, a couple of things have to happen. Are you going to make it all the way through to the end? When I was with friends back in California last week, we had a breakfast. You ever have one of those breakfasts that it was noon and nobody had gotten up from the table? It was like, where's lunch now? We're, just, we're laughing, we're talking, and we're telling stories. And they shared with me about people that I baptized 25 years ago that I've lost touch with, and they're telling me how these people are walking with the Lord, and I'm on a mountaintop. And then in the same conversation, our dear friends across the table are telling us about their 25-year-old daughter who was baptized and in the church, but for the last four years, she has nothing to do with church or the faith. And I'm in the deepest valley. That's the way it is. But the question is, who is going to make it all the way through to the end? Two things have to be true. To make it all the way through to the end, to make it all the way through to the end with Jesus, you have to trust and love Jesus all the way through to the end. That we understand, it's intuitive. But James' argument here is this, to make it all the way through to the end, you also have to trust and love the people of Jesus, which is the church. And perhaps it's easy to make it all the way through with Jesus because Jesus is perfect. But perhaps it is difficult to make it all the way through with the people of Jesus because when we love the people of Jesus, we are loving imperfect people who are going to disappoint us and make us want to grumble and complain. But the only way to make it steadfast all the way through to the end is to trust Jesus and to cultivate ongoing healthy relationships with the people of Jesus. And sometimes the people of Jesus require extra patience. Every church has them. As I talk about those who require extra patience, I want you to see if you're sitting too far away, take my word for it, I'm smiling when I say this. I'm not grumpy, I'm smiling when I say this. Every church on God's green earth has in it members who are, their label is EPR, extra patience required. Every church has those in its membership. Most churches like this have that on their pastoral staff as well. We get that. We get that. And when, when we are with a person who is requiring extra patience, two things can happen. Verse 8, our heart can fail us. Verse 9, our tongue can fail us. Verse 8, the steadfastness of our trust in God can wither. Verse 9, our patience and kindness with our tongue can just blast through and we can become impatient and grumble at them. We grumble against others while we're in difficult times. And this is, this is, this is James Bailiwick here is that we grumble when we're in difficult times and every one of us is so quick to forget what James has said. What James has said in James chapter four, verse one, when you are in a difficult time, when you are in a difficult relationships, James asks one question in James chapter four, verse one, that we all, we can't forget the question quick enough. 
And the question he asks in James 4.1 is this, what is the source? As soon as we're in a conflict, we say, well, the source is, he is so annoying, she makes me so impatient, this person is so wrong, and this person is so wrong, and all the dirt on their sidewalk. And James says in James chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your own lusts in your own hearts? James says, would you sweep your own porch and quit bellyaching about how much dirt has collected on somebody else's. Quit grumbling against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door to blame our impatience and our grouchiness on someone else is to push the source of our conflicts outside of our own heart. And this is to violate and refuse to believe what God's spirit has said to you, which is that the source is your own heart. And so in an effort to exhort us and help us to not grumble and complain about one another, candidly, to help exhort and help you not to grumble and complain about me, because I can be an extra patience required person too. Let me maybe give you three simple principles about this issue because it comes up so much. Principle number one, impatience ruins relationships. Impatience ruins relationships. Therefore, we need to, we need to repent of impatience quickly and often. Impatience ruins relationships. We need to repent of it quickly and often. You do know that impatience ruins relationships. I wish, I wish that you didn't know that impatience ruins relationships from your own personal experience. I wish I didn't have a list of regrets of how I've seen in my life impatience ruin relationships. But I have my list of regrets and I'm sure you do too. We know it by bitter experience that impatience ruins relationships. So we need to repent of impatience quickly and often. And you know, beloved, the essence, the essence of our, our, our life together is our relationships. We had a good time of singing today. Nothing against the music, to have the piano, the drums, the guitar. We had a good time of singing today, but it is certainly the case that now that everyone has a smart device, you can find your very favorite Christian music and your very favorite performance of that Christian music and you can watch it whenever you want. With nothing against our music, you can find better music somewhere else. Don't even get me started on the preaching. Now that everyone has a, now that everyone has a smart device, you can find your favorite preacher, living or dead, and your favorite subject, and you can look at that, listen to that, watch that all day long. You can find better preaching somewhere else. What is the essence of what we are here? What you cannot find on a smart device and you will never find on a screen is our family relationship to each other. We're brothers, we're sisters. When you sin and grumble, I am literally hurt by it. And when I sin and fail, you are hurt by my failures because we belong to each other in one body. This is our covenant membership with each other. And patience, 
strengthens our relationships with each other. Impatience ruins it. The church is not a body of people who confess the same thing about vaccines and their importance. The church is not a group of people who are all the same age or all have the same this or that. We are one. We read Ephesians 2 for our, for our uh, communion meditation. Ephesians 2, verse 11 and following says, we are one because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us one. One of the most sweet things about the church is our intergenerational relationships. But one of the ways that we are most tempted to impatience is that all the young get so impatient with the old because the old are slow to change. And the old get so impatient with the young because the young are so quick to change and they don't understand the costs and the consequences of those changes. And we need patience with one another so that impatience doesn't ruin our relationships. Number two, patience requires sweet reliance and total trust in God. Patience requires this, sweet reliance and total trust in God. Total trust in God's control. When we're patient, we can trust that God is running the clock. When we are impatient, we're like, God, this doesn't fit my time frame. Patience requires sweet reliance and total trust in God's control. Christian theologian John Webster has a little definition of patience that is so simple that its simplicity, I think, belies its profundity. Webster says, patience is the virtue in which we allow our lives to run their allotted course in their allotted time. It's so simple. Patience is the Christian virtue, the faith-filled virtue, where we allow our lives to run their allotted course in their allotted time. As we exercise patience, we let our lives and the lives of others follow the path which God has laid down for them. We don't rail against the constraints. Impatience is our anger directed against the fact that we are limited by ourselves and limited by other people and limited by our situation. Essentially, patience is a sweet reliance and trust on God that says God has the clock and God laid down the tracks that our life is running on. And impatience just burns a fire to melt down the tracks and veer them this way and that way on our time schedule. And it doesn't work. Patience, well, just like he said in verse 7, be patient brothers like the farmer who waits for the rain. Patience is that particular Christian virtue that acknowledges God is God and I'm not, so I'm waiting on the Lord. That's why the illustration of the farmer is so apt. What farmer, the, the more bellicose he can make his voice, yelling at those clouds, is the quicker they're going to rain? Never in his lifetime. Patience trusts God's control of those things. And in our relationships with other people, even when they're not where they ought to be, we patiently, patiently endure because we trust in God's control. He's coming out of your life as a vapor. Don't be saying where you're going to do and where you're going to do this. Say, if the Lord wills, God's the one in control. Patience requires sweet reliance and total trust in God's control. And then number three, principle about not grumbling with each other, I want to bring back this old-fashioned Christian word, forbearance. F-O-R, 
B-E-A-R-A-N-C-E. Forbearance is a Christian quality that will greatly bless this church. Forbearance is a Christian quality that will greatly bless this church. And just to turn to one place that isn't James 5, I'd ask you to turn to Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, because this is where we get that great old Christian word, forbearance. Some translations have long-suffering, which is also a good word, long-suffering or forbearance. Ephesians 4, verse 1 I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, that's forbearance, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Forbearance is long-suffering, having a long fuse. Forbearance is such a realistic and honest requirement. It's bearing with people that if you were just you in your flesh, you would never put up with them. But because the spirit of Jesus is in you, you can forbear with gentleness and patience. So much gentleness and so much humility that those people don't even feel like you're tolerating them. They actually experience from you joy and love. Forbearance is the, is the evidence of the spirit of Jesus within you. It speaks of getting along, of putting up with people that are unlike us. Forbearance involves bearing with others' weaknesses. It involves not ceasing to love others when they don't do things our way. This is the kind of atmosphere where breaches are instantly healed and where bitterness is just absolutely, there's no place for it. Forbearance is 1 Peter 4.8. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. That's forbearance, love covering sin. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over sin. Forbearance is that the presence of the Spirit where what, what would make you, what would set you off if you were still the same old you, now it doesn't because Jesus has changed you. It's long-suffering, the longer you live with Jesus, the longer your fuse gets. Long-suffering is a great Christian quality. I was gone last week. I, I heard this week of a, a pastor who was gone last week, and he came home, and he opened his office, and there was a note on his desk about long-suffering. And it said, Dear Pastor, we want to thank you because the Bible says that as Christians, we should be long-suffering. And surely we have learned how to suffer long under your preaching ministry. <laughs> Warm regards, your deacon board. Forbearance, long-suffering. If you, here, here's a very blunt way to put it, but I trust helpfully because we're family. You personally, you personally find some other members of this church to be EPR, extra patience required. Why is that? The reason, in other words, how did they get into the membership? The reason they got into the membership is because you are, so to speak, not the Pope of this church. You don't have a magic wand where you and you alone get to pick. Her, I want in. Him, I want out. 
her, I'm not sure, give me three weeks and I'll decide. This, this is not your decision. Who decides who's in and out of the membership of the church? That would be God himself. So if there is someone in the church who is in your life annoying you and causing you to have extra patience, only two options. One, God made a mistake by letting them in the church. Not a good option. Your God doesn't make mistakes, at least last time you checked. Second option, there's something wrong with you. You aren't yet as patient as Jesus is. And maybe the reason that Jesus let that EPR person in the church is so that you, by your covenant membership in this very church, in this very zip code, would become a little less annoyed like you are and a little more long-suffering and forbearing like Jesus is with you. His plan is so good. His plan is so perfect. And we need to trust. We need to trust. Forbearance is that Christian quality that'll so greatly bless the church. Church, couldn't you talk about this? You can talk about this at lunch. What, how would it benefit our church if there was a grand increase in forbearance with one another? And the inverse question, what would it cost our church if there were no longer any forbearance with one another? James 5, verses 8 and 9. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Wow, James correlates our grumbling against one another with our facing judgment when Jesus returns. We celebrated in the communion meal that all of our sins were laid on Christ at the cross. This is not a, an ultimate judgment of condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there's not a judgment of condemnation. But there is surely a reckoning in the presence of Jesus for the words that we've spoken and the way that we've treated the people whom Jesus purchased with his blood. There's a reckoning for that. And that reckoning comes when he returns, when he burns up the wood, hay, and the stubble. And he rewards us for those, those precious deeds and those precious words. Don't you love how he says it in verse 9? Well, he says in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that seems a little ethereal. So he says in verse 9, there's a door right there. And Jesus has his hand on that door. And his foot is in midair. That's how close he is to getting here. In light of the eschaton, right, there's nothing more once in a lifetime than the return of Jesus. I, I saw the same news clips you saw this week, Israel, all those missiles. We wonder, what, when's, it gonna, when's he going to return? When's he going to stand on the Mount of Olives? There's nothing more once in a lifetime than the return of Jesus. And there is nothing more pedestrian and common than grumbling. You grumble Every day that ends in why you spend grumbling. That's how common it is. And the Spirit of God here takes our grumbling and annoyance with one another 
and the, the, the return of Jesus Christ, and in this marvelous display of gospel ethics, he lays both on top of each other. And he says, if you're going to make it all the way through to the return of Christ, in that eschaton, all of your excuses for why you complained about somebody else's porch being dirty, they're all going to burn away. This is the ethics of eschatology, which is something as simple as, would you stop complaining when you hear of how soon is the return of our Lord? This is our gospel. God so loved us that he forgave us. And now that we have received that forgiveness, the very spirit of Christ within us allows us to be forbearing and loving and giving. Oh, church, in the light of Christ's soon return, let us live and speak in this way. Let's pray. We bow together for prayer. I just give you a moment to pray. Perhaps to say, uh, Lord Jesus, this was a word of rebuke to me. Jesus, it's a measure of your kindness to correct me like this. And so, Jesus, I confess, I complain way too much. Jesus, I confess, I grumble about my fellow church members way too much. And Jesus, I repent. Thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive me for those sins by your blood. And I'd ask you to pray for new Christian virtue, for new Christ-likeness of speech and heart and thought. Jesus, you are so patient with me. Oh, would you help me to be patient with others? Jesus, you have been so long-suffering with me. Would you help me to be long-suffering with others? Jesus, you have been so forgiving to me. Would you dig out the root of bitterness and help me to forgive others? Lord Jesus, hear your children as they pray. We are your family, brothers and sisters with one another. Help us to love one another as you have loved us in light of your soon return. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.